All right, good morning, and thank you for joining me this morning. It's good to see you all here. Uh, and for those of you that uh, uh, are joining us for the first time, many first-time faces in here, welcome. For those of you who have been with me for a while, welcome back. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've met, and uh, so I've decided I'm just going to do a little bit of a, a recap of, of where we've been and where we're going in this study of Ephesians. The, the title of the class is called How to Build a Church, and the reason I've called it that is, is, uh, is because if you're, if you're looking for a biblical manual uh, for how the church should interact with itself, uh, I'm not sure there's a better letter than the book of Ephesians to do that because it's not just about how you should act as a Christian. So many times we approach the Bible that way. We'll look at the scriptures and we'll say, how does this affect me? How, how does this mean I should live differently now? And certainly it does that. But in the book of Ephesians in particular, it has to do with how we should interact with each other. Given the fact that you and I are different people now because of the, the spirit that is within us, how does that mean now that I interact with you? How does that dictate the way that you and I should, uh, should act with each other? Because here's the reality. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to, to live in a, a life uh, of, of Christianity, of the church together. It's hard to do that. Uh, you can be a hard person to get along with. <laughs> uh, I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, though Spencer is over there saying, me? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know why? Be because you and me, we're both sinners. We're both sinners, and, uh, and I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. When you put two sinners together, anything can happen. The fireworks start flying. Our saving grace, however, is, is that as a Christian, and I alluded to this uh, a moment ago, I have the Holy Spirit in me. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And, and as he's promised, he has promised to grow both of us. Okay, so that anything that we do, any, any act or behaviors that we engage in, ultimately is going to serve for our own sanctification, our own growth. He promises to do that. And, uh, and so Paul has been building this case on how to do this. The first three chapters in Ephesians, he's been telling us of, of everything that you and I are in Christ. And he's been telling us this, uh, uh, everything that we're in Christ and how we are unified in Christ, regardless of our heritage, specifically that would have been important back then, because it, it's not just a, a salvation that comes to the Jew, but the Jew and the Gentile, and we're forming one body under Christ. And, and a few weeks back, I explained for you what the indicative and the imperative is. Do you remember what the indicative and the imperative is? Who, who thinks they could probably, I think I can tell you what the indicative, I'm going to do some crowd work here. Here we go. Who can tell us what the indicative and the imperative, when I'm speaking of the Bible, what, what does that mean? you remember any of that? Indicative and the imperative. What is, what's an imperative? It's a what? An exclamation statement or a command, okay? A command of the Bible is an imperative. Whenever we have an imperative in the Bible, a command, it's always preceded or immediately followed by the indicative. What is the indicative? A what? A question? It's more, more than a question. It's a, an answer. Okay, so in other, in other words, when you think of the word indicative, you know, it may be uh, indicate is, is the root word there. So if you have an imperative, a command of the Bible, it, it's always preceded by or followed by something indicative, something that indicates who you are, what has been done for you. The greatest example, the easiest example I can think of is, are the Ten Commandments, because we all know about the Ten Commandments. They're commandments. They're imperatives. 
What's the first commandment? We all know the first commandment, or most of us, you should have no other gods before you. But is that how Exodus chapter 20 starts? No. How does Exodus chapter 20, which are the Ten Commandments, how does that chapter start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's indicating something. He's reminding you of who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are before you even read these Ten Commandments. Because the end result there is, if you remember who you are, if you remember that, that uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, I fight for you. I go before you. I do all those things before you. And if you remember that, then commandment number one. And, and it's all throughout the Bible. You cannot find a commandment, an imperative in the Bible, without first stumbling across an indicative. It's always there. And the book of Ephesians is, is sort of one big outline of the indicative and the imperative. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians are filled with a lot of imperatives. A lot of do this, don't do that. Be this kind of person, don't be that kind of person, okay? And with that many commands, again, if you only read those, you would leave here thinking, I got a lot of things to do. I, I, got, a lot of, I got a lot of commands. I got a lot of boxes to check. So if you don't read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, you're going to feel like I got to do this under my own power because chapters 1, 2, and 3 is a straight-up, constant, over-and-again reminder of who you are in Christ, Okay, he's laid the foundation for us of who we are in Christ in those chapters and how it is that we have any power whatsoever to be able to go about accomplishing the commands that he sets forth for the rest of the book. Now, here's one of the biggest indicatives. This is in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians. This is sort of kind of the thesis statement, if you will, of, of Ephesians, uh, of the whole book. This is an indicative. This is a reminder of who you are. All right, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And, and this is not your own doing. Your faith... Even your faith is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. You are his workmanship, okay? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Indicative. So in light of this, in light of this, here's, here's some uh, imperatives that I'm going to give you. So we're created in Christ, as it says here, for good works for carrying out these commands. This is the power by which we carry out these orders. Remember that. Keep that in mind as we proceed. For the rest of the, of the unit here, for the rest of the semester, you are, you are bathed in indicatives so that any command that you get going forward is, is, is understood in light of that. Okay, let's look at our imperatives for today. This is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. So we're Ephesians 4, verse 17. And it goes like this. Isn't this a great screen? Can you all see it in the back? Can you see it? Man, good. I, 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 there, was, there was three back there. I said, I want the biggest one. Now, the, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this, that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth it is in Jesus, come on in, it's okay, uh, to put off your old self. This is, this is a really important section here, 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires 
and to be renewed by the spirit of your minds and to put on the old self, excuse me, (laughs) to put on the new self, very important, don't mix that up, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so that's our scripture for today. It's our list of commands, right? And that we're being asked to carry out. And the main theme that Paul is underscoring here is that idea of putting off the old self and and putting on the new self. He, He tells us that we're no longer like the Gentiles, and he lists several examples of what that looked like, what that looks like. And then he tells us, put off the old, put on the new. What do you think that is? How do you do that? How do you, if you're, if, if someone's, if you have a, a non-Christian friend, a non-believer, and they ask you, what, what does Paul mean by that? What does Paul mean by putting off the old self, putting on the new self? What are you being asked to do here? How do you practically do that? Who wants to make a, take a guess at that? suggestion. Because remember what I just said, it's not about a list of commands. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, so what does it look like? How do you, how do you do this then? Put God first. Put God first. Okay, I like that response. Put God first. He's, he's your first priority in everything you do, right? Okay, I'm going to press you a little bit here, okay? How do you do that? <laughs> how do you do that? How do you, how do you put God first? Did you have your hand up? I'm going to give you the mic. So you're saying there's a realization. You come to, you come to grips with, with reality, right? Okay, we're approaching my first point. All right. Anyone else? That's a good answer. Anyone else? Yeah, Lucy. Wow. Okay, that's really good. Uh, that's really good. You, you know, it's, a, it's a matter of the heart, you're saying. Okay, first, falling in love. Falling in love with, with, with Jesus, not because you see him as a, as a, as a set of commands, but because you, you see how lovely the word is, how lovely, and you fall in love. I, I, the, the, one of the songs that we sang this morning uh, when we opened our worship service was, Nothing is better than you. Nothing is better. Nothing. Nothing. Coming to the realization that nothing is better than you, suddenly there's a, there's a heart change, and, and you start to see things differently. When you have a heart change like that, it doesn't look like a list anymore. This. I got to do that. You find pleasure in it. You find joy in it, okay? Uh, you, great, great job. You're hitting on all the right, the right, uh, the right things. This is, this is, to me, what's fascinating about the, the Christian life, especially as it pertains to Reformed uh, theology, sort of this Reformed tradition that we're in. Because as good Calvinists, you know, Reformed Presbyterians who generally believe in predestination, right? We have a tendency of, of sometimes taking that too far. Sure, if God chooses me for, for salvation, if it's his work and by his power, not mine, I'm saved, then great. Then I can just put myself on cruise control. And he's, he's going he's gonna to work it all out, right? No. No, any good Calvinist, like myself, I would, I would put in that category, will tell you that's not the way it works. 
That's not the way it works. It's not about, oh, he's got it. I, I, I'm just, I can just be on cruise control now. That's not, that's not falling in love. That's not, that's not a response of the heart, okay? I, I believe that God chose me before the foundation of the world. And if that alarms you, we can discuss that afterwards. But, but, but I believe that I'm saved 100% by his work and his doing. Not anything that I bring to the table. I sincerely believe that. But in the midst of that, in, in the midst of my calling... In the midst of my being saved by him, he calls me to participate in my sanctification. He calls me to action. You know, and again, you can immediately take that and think, well, it's a to-do list now. No, this is what we're trying to get at here. Because if you think about it, he could have certainly done it this way. He could have certainly said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to save you. You're saved. And now you're glorified. You're up in heaven. Done. It's, it's done. There's no more work to be done. Right? I could have done that with, um, he could have done that with Marla, and Marla would be, but what did he do? He didn't decide to do it that way, right? He saved Marla, and then Marla said, okay, or then, then the Lord said, Marla, there's, there's some work to be done now, and I'm calling you to participate in that, okay? So now what we're trying to figure out is, is what that participation looks like, because it can't just be a list. It can't just be, it can't just be a set of rules that we follow, because again, that's not, that's not a, that's not a response of the heart, okay? Now, this is uh, to just affirm this idea. Uh, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, again, this does not mean work out your saving faith. He's already saved you, but you're, you're also still being saved. You're also still being sanctified. So he's calling you, you've got to work this part out. You're called into this part uh, with fear and trembling. In other words, if you have that attitude of, you know what, I'm saved, once saved, always saved, I'm on cruise control, that's not fear and trembling. You, you got to participate, right? For it is God who works in you, see, it's still his work, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. We're to work out our salvation. We're to work through it. And he's going to ensure that you get there because in a sense, he, he's going to supervise our efforts, which, and that's probably a poor metaphor because he's doing much more than just supervising. We're at work with fear and trembling. He supervises the point that he still brings about his will for his good pleasure. I have this image in my mind of, uh, of how we teach infants to walk. Uh, for, for some of you, that is a little more removed. I mean, I'm, I have a, my youngest is 15, so it's been a minute since I've tried to teach an infant to walk, since my wife and I have done that. But do you remember how that goes? At first, it's very unstable. At first, it's very wobbly, right? <laughs> And you, and you hold them up by the hands like this and, and you lead them around the room and they start to build those muscles. They start to build those. And, you, and what do you do? You, you, you don't want them to, to fall near that corner of the coffee table. You don't want them to hit their head on that corner, right? You're ensuring that. You're ensuring that doesn't happen. And when you teach them to walk, you're not just going to say, hey, let's give it a shot right here in the middle of I-65. Let's do that. No, you don't do that, right? Where do you do it? In the, the comfort and the safety of your home, okay? And, and, and you take the first steps there. You learn to put one foot in front of the other. We learn to develop those muscles. And guess what? You don't do that alone. Okay? We do it under the watch of our Heavenly Father. He guides us and shields us and won't let us walk down a flight of stairs on our own. Okay? And you know what? Sometimes you'll fall. Even as you, just like you teach an infant, sometimes you let him fall. And, and, and he'll pick us right back up. We keep going. All right? So, so back to putting off and putting on. Uh, how do we balance this? How do we live life in light of the fact that we're called to do something 
and yet empowered by the Spirit. So how do we do that exactly? How do you make the conscious decision to stop living one way and then start living another way? Okay, here's how it happens. We talked about this word a moment ago, realization, all right? There's, there's a moment of realization. There has to be. There has to be. What are you realizing? All right? Notice that Paul says to stop living like Gentiles, and he's speaking to Gentiles. What, what he's actually saying, though, is that even though that these were Gentiles, of course they were living the way, the way Gentiles do. They're Gentiles. He's describing in verses 17 to 19 the way that they had come to see their old pattern of life. That's the way they were. And when we're living like that, do you suppose when they're living like Gentiles, they have this thought of, oh gosh, we're, we're living like Gentiles. No, because they're Gentiles, right? A great illustration that Tim Keller used, he likened it to a fish trying to describe water. What would, if you could talk to the fish and say, uh, tell me what water is like, what do you suppose the fish would say? What's water? <laughs> the fish would say, they, they don't know anything outside of their own reality. There's no basis of comparison for what they can use to describe water, the water they swim around in, right? It's not water, it's just, it's just life. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 17, okay? This is, this is the realization that we're talking about. This is what you have to realize at some point. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The futility of their minds. Can someone tell me what the word futile means? What does the word futile mean? Hopeless. What a great word. I googled it, and uh, it says this. Did I put a... I think I did. Yes. Adjective. Incapable of producing any useful result. Pointless. Pointless. Hopeless is a, a great synonym for that. Now let's go back. In the futility, in the hopelessness of their minds. Don't walk as the Gentiles do, in the hopelessness of their minds. Pointless. There's your first step. The first step comes in the realization that aside from living, uh, living, living apart from God, life is futile. Life is, is pointless. Now, have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? What a drag. <laughs> you know, the, the point of the book is, what's the point of anything? <laughs> That's kind of how the whole book goes, and it's true. There's no point to any of this if, if, if there's nothing beyond it, all right? So what Paul is saying to these Ephesians and what he's been saying to you and me is that before we were saved, we didn't feel like our life was meaningless. It didn't really dawn on us. It seemed like there was a point to what I was doing in that moment, I suppose. But then at some point, when, when you live a life in Christ, you have to realize that everything we're doing is meaningless. We can, do all, we can do all we want for 80 or 90 years, and then what happens? That's it. That's it. We're just put into the ground, and, and that's it. And if that's all there is to it, what point is there to do anything else that's less than selfish? Shouldn't I just grab as much as I can, as much as I want, if I'm here, and enjoy it as much as I can? If really all the, at the end of this is just 80, 90 years, and then I'm put in the ground, and that's it? I mean, why wouldn't I grab for everything? If there's nothing beyond this, there has to be a place in which you recognize the kind of life you're living without God is futile. So how do you get to that moment of realization? How do you get there? 
the Bible tells us it, it comes by way of God. He's the one who takes the scales off your eyes. He's the one who opens your ears and you hear it. You realize you come to the end of yourself in what is a, a futile existence otherwise. It's then and only then, once he opens our eyes, that we can resolve to do something different. And at that point, you put off and you put on. If you put your trust in Christ, there's a, mo there's a moment in time for each of us. Do you, do you know what it was for me? It, it was maybe around the ninth grade. Uh, I was probably, I would describe myself, I think I was already Christian by then. So I understood that Jesus, you know, I needed Jesus. If I wanted to be saved, I needed Jesus. But I remember it was in preparation for a mission trip that we were about to go on in the ninth grade. And uh, my friend Jason, you know, the pastor wanted to talk to all of us. Before we went off to this mission trip, he wanted to talk to all of us. And uh, I remember talking to him and I felt like, well, that went pretty well. Um, my friend went in there and uh, I was in there maybe 10 minutes. My friend was in there 10 minutes. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I'm like, what is going on in there? And I found out later, you know, because my friend told me all about the conversation, but he asked, you know, he asked that basic question. Uh, why, do you, why do you feel like the Lord should save you? Why do you feel like the Lord should let you into heaven? Was kind of maybe the question back then that, that a lot of evangelists asked. If, if the Lord asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what would you say? And what do you think his response was? You don't know him. How would you know? But you could guess. Well, I've tried to live a good life. I've, uh, I've, I've done everything I, I think I, I should do. And okay, well, well now, now we have something to talk about. Because again, if we're talking about life is futile, what good is trying to live a good life? What, is that, what does that gain you? Okay, so my, my, my pastor, my pastor asked, he said, you see, Jason, it's great you've tried to live a good life, but that's not enough. He went on to ask him, who is the greatest swimmer in the world? And at the time, this is going to show you how old I am, was not Michael Phelps. <laughs> it was Mark Spitz. Does anyone remember the name Mark Spitz? Okay, a few of you. All right, it was Mark Spitz. And he said, Mark Spitz is the best swimmer in the world. And, and my pastor agreed and said he was the best there was. And he went on to say, do you think that Mark Spitz could swim from Los Angeles to Hawaii? Well, of course not. Can't do that. You see, in the metaphor he was trying to make, as good as you think you are, as much of a, an Olympian Christian as you might think you are, Right? As good of a life, a life as you live, you, you can come nowhere near to what the standard is, no matter how great a swimmer you are. If you think you're Mark Spitz or Michael Phelps, even he can't swim to Hawaii. Can't do it. And in hearing that, for me, a light bulb went off. Again, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was a Christian already. I could try and swim to Hawaii. I'll never get there. I'll never, ever get there. I can try being good. I can try doing what's right, being well-behaved as I can, but I, it will never be enough to meet the standard. And that's, that, that's not how you earn God's favor. You can't do it by trying on your own. Someone else, to extend the metaphor, someone else has to swim to Hawaii on your behalf. And someone else who's actually capable of doing it. And, and there's only one. And then, and then I got it. I got it. That made sense to me. My eyes were open. And, and someone, someone else swims, I get the credit. So, so you, you can't put off the old and put on the new without first realizing that. Okay, and it's upon that realization that you, that you, you can resolve to do something different. 
Does that make any sense? Do you get that? That is so fundamental. That's, that's the first thing you have to understand. And if you ever want to communicate the gospel to someone, that's the first thing you have to be able to That you can't do it. You can't swim to Hawaii. You can never dream to do that. How far could you get? How far could you get? And it's a chasm to go, right? So, so what happens next? All right, the first step, again, realizing your life is futile apart from Christ. And it's only in that God-given discovery that you begin to put off the, the uh, old and put on the new. So what happens next, okay? Now you have that understanding. Now you understand. Next, you have to have some kind of motivation. There's got to be a motivation. You can have the realization, but what, what's going to motivate you to, to now engage in putting off the old and, and uh, putting on the new? Uh, again, if you've ever talked to someone about becoming a Christian, inevitably it involves questions about what they'll have to give up. And what they'll have to stop, stop doing and start doing. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? If you become a Christian, does this mean I'll have to, I'll have to stop this lifestyle? Does that mean I'll have to uh, no longer, I don't know, smoke? Does that mean I'll, I'll, I can't drink anymore? Does that mean I can no longer identify with these type of people? Is this, is this what I have to give up? All right. This is what everyone who thinks, who isn't a Christian, thinks being a Christian is. Living a moral life, and then that life of morality gets you into heaven. Well, again, that's not, that's what we just articulated. That's not what it's about. It can't be further from the truth. Being a Christian is about, not, not about living a moral life. Morality, even Christian morality, even Jesus-centered ethics is not Christianity. So how does it work? It has to be a change like we talked about before. It has to be about falling in love. It's, about, it's a change from the inside. It's a change from the inside out. Okay, again, this idea of the indicative and the imperative. Eventually, we're going to get, to the, to get there. We're going to get down to the end of this chapter. But starting in verse 25, look what Paul is telling us to do. Don't lie. He starts with all these. Don't lie. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't steal. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. This whole list is a list of moral things that we, we should and shouldn't do. So again, if you only read that, we'll think that Christianity is a bunch of moral codes. But you see, before you get to 25, we have verses 23 and 24, which says what? It tells us how to execute these moral behaviors. In verse 23, we're told to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay? This means your, your inner motivation is different. You're not just trying to look good on the outside by maintaining moral behavior. You're renewed on the inside... And your mind has a different purpose now, a different motivation. And as a result, as a natural byproduct, the moral behavior is produced. You know, the, the fruit is produced naturally. You know, here's what that looks like practically speaking. Okay? We, we shouldn't lie, right? Can we all agree on that? We shouldn't lie? All right. Why shouldn't we lie? Let, let's, try, let's try and figure out different motivations here. What, what's a good motivation for not lying? Why, why would you not want to lie? Say again? It's not, neighbor it's not neighbor loving. Okay, that's good. That's a good reason. What? Destroy trust. Destroy trust. Okay, because if you lie and someone finds you in a lie, uh, suddenly you are not a trustworthy person. Don't lie, so you are viewed as a trustworthy person. Seems pretty good, right? All right. Uh, what's another reason not to lie? Well, I'm not a liar. I'm not, a liar. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I'm a truth teller, okay? Uh, I want people to perceive me 
as a truth teller. Okay, do you see on the surface these might be pretty good reasons, but do you see what they're baked in? They're still, they're still centered around self. They're still centered around me. I, I, want, I want people to perceive me this way. I want people to view me as a trustworthy person, okay? It's still possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Your reason for doing the right things could, could have a motivation that comes from the, an entirely wrong place for selfish reasons, for reasons of pride, all right? What that means is you may be, Emily, your answer was good because it was it focused on neighbor, right? And that's the beginning of it. Why would we want to focus on neighbor instead of ourselves? We're getting at it here. What it means, though, is you can be an incredibly honest person, but if pride is your motivation for being an honest person, basically you're being honest because it pays off for you. And I promise you there'll come a time when telling the truth will not pay off, will not work toward how you're perceived. Okay? And suddenly your motivation, your system of morality, all that crumbles to the ground if it's, if it's self-focused. So what's really the reason we don't lie? It's a renewed spirit of the mind. It's out of gratitude. For, for, for free grace salvation, it, it, it's, a, it's a set of truths you take into your center to change the way you think about God, yourself, the world, everything. That's just the motivation. I forgive you and I don't resent you because the, I realize the magnitude from which I've been forgiven. Right? I freely forgive so much so that because I was so freely forgiven. I'm patient with people because I realize the depth to which my Heavenly Father is patient with me. I don't steal because I realize I already have everything I could possibly need. You see, I've been renewed. I've been renewed. I have a whole new way of looking at things that starts from the inside and works its way out. You see the difference? You see the difference? You see the motivation we put off the old and put on the new, not because we have a new task to do, but because our inner motivations are completely different. We're coming from an entirely different place. I realize the burden that's been lifted off of me. Why would I put a burden on you? Okay, do you see how unique this is for the Christian? Only the Christian believes they've been forgiven an enormous debt. That, that's, a, that's unique to the Christian worldview. The non-Christian has no sense of that. So that can't be their motivation for doing anything. Non-Christians walk around not, not thinking that, I, I've not been forgiven an enormous debt. So how could that change their outward behavior? It's all, it's all pride-focused. And again, I, I don't say here, stand up here as someone's got it all figured out, because again, that pride still creeps into everything you do. It still creeps in. And we have to be reminded of these things over and over and over again. All right, any thoughts or comments or questions about that? That's, that's a lot, I know. Yeah, Garland. Maybe an easy way to say it is like, um, also, if you were explaining it to someone, would be like, well, that's not the nature of God. Right. Also, like, Jesus doesn't lie. Or maybe I want to be more like Jesus. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're actually getting my next point. That's really good. Uh, someone else? Any thoughts? And then, then we'll get into, I want to be more like Jesus. You know, because what, what motivation is there to be more like Jesus? Same, same things apply. You, know, you, you, can, you want to be like Jesus because there could be a pride factor to that, but also because you find him lovely. Because you, you, you're so uh, overwhelmed by him and what he's done for you that why wouldn't I? Of course I want to be like him. Disagree? No, I agree. Oh. I was just going to say, but we're so human. Like, yeah, oh yeah. Like yeah. So I have to humble myself and get on my knees and ask God to give me the strength. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many paths it takes us 
Yeah. And, and he says, walk this way. And you're like, well. Not the way I would do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone else? Thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> Impossible. Such a good way to say it. Thank you, Scott, for saying that. That's really, that's really good because, again, there, there are moments. It's almost like having training wheels. You know, you're, when you're riding a bicycle with training wheels, you're not really riding a bike, okay? Eventually, the training wheels come off, though. Same thing. There's, there's going to be times where you catch yourself uh, in, in, uh, in an action. Even, like, say, you're doing something right for the wrong reasons. You catch yourself in that. And then and you, you have to force yourself into thinking, to, into renewing the mind. What's my motivation? By? Why am I really doing this? And again, I would, what I would contend there is that you would only have that thought if there was a Holy Spirit, only if there was a Holy Spirit present in you to, to convince you otherwise. Uh, but, but really well stated. Let me, let me get to this last point here, because we only got a few minutes. Uh, the, I think, remember. We have, to rem we have to remember who we are. Remember who we are. This is the payoff. It comes uh, in our last verse. 24. This gives us a clue how to, to put on the new self, verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, is what we were talking about a moment ago, like Christ, in true righteousness and, and holiness. Okay, we've come full circle back to the heart of our lesson, sanctification, uh, being made like Jesus. Uh, just really quickly, what sanctification is, is the process where we increasingly die unto sin and, li and live under righteousness. It's the process we are, where we are being made to be like Jesus, to put on a new self, putting on his self, putting on the, the life that, that, uh, that's created after the likeness of God. All right, so, so putting on the new self means looking at Jesus and saying, that's what I want to be. I want to be like that. L listen to 1 John 3, 2 to 3. 1 John 3, 2 to 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Listen to that verse three again. Everyone who thus hopes in him, when, you're, when your focus is on him, when, he, when, when your thoughts are held captive by him, purify, uh, he, he purifies himself as he is pure. We're changed. We're changed. And this means that, that to even want to be like Jesus will make us like Jesus. The actual day we meet him face to face, we're told, will be, we'll be immediately transformed in his likeness. We'll be like mirrors, okay? And on that day, we're going to see Jesus and we'll be instantly transformed in his likeness. We were created to be in his image and his likeness. Therefore, that's what we're trying to do when we put on the new self. How do we put on the new self? First, it's, it's a lot like putting off the old self. You put on the new self by first reminding yourself of who you are. Putting on the new self is not just putting on this new habit or that, that new habit. It is changing the reigning and governing principle of your whole life. We think of ourselves in a new way and in a completely new way. 
It's a whole new way. It's a whole new identity and reminding yourself of who you are and who you are. Who are you? Let me remind you. Oh, that's just a blank slide. There, there's a place in Luke. Uh, this is so great. Uh, I didn't come up with this. Uh, but uh, where, where the Lord sends out the apostles two by two to do miracles. They come back and they say something to the effect of, Lord, this is great. We're casting out demons. We're healing people. Even the demons are subject to our names. And then Jesus says, do you remember what he responds, how he responds to that? What does he say? That your name is written in the book of life. He says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to your names. That's pretty good too, though, you know, right? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, okay? In, in the earthly priesthood, uh, the high priest, just stick with me for a moment on this, this imagery, the high priest had a breastplate. And on that breastplate were all these beautiful stones. Every one of these stones was engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And because Jesus is the high priest, you can read about this in Hebrews, Jesus is likely talking about the fact that if you belong to him, if you belong to Jesus, your name is engraved over his breastplate, engraved over his heart. As the high priest, he's our advocate. He takes us before the Father. Every day he stands before the Father and he testifies, this one's mine. His name is written on my, my breastplate. When the Father looks at us, he sees a beautiful jewel. He sees Jesus Christ, okay? He sees that completed image from the mirror that looks like Christ. And he regards us like that. See, even though we're reflecting him, he regards us like that. See, Jesus commands them not to rejoice in the power they have to cast out demons. He says, do you think that's something? If you think that's something, that's nothing compared to the power of, of the joy of knowing your true position, of knowing that your heart is written on the breastplate of Christ. So, so here's what that looks like, practically speaking. Many of us pray that we could have the power to, to cast out proverbial demons in our own life. I, Lord, I wish I could stop that forever right? What Jesus is saying here is that kind of power is nothing compared to the power of knowing the, of, of who you are. What, what he's saying is, is, is most problems that we have, that we want to cast out, that we want to put off, most of our problems we have are happening because we're forgetting who we are. We don't remember our position before the Father. We forget that. We forget it. I'm depressed because those things aren't governing the spirit of my mind. I'm tempted because I don't remember who I am in Christ. I'm not remembering who I am. I choose to believe what other people are saying about me instead of remembering what Jesus says about me. And that changes who I am. That changes my behavior because I forget. If, if I lose sleep at night because I'm stressing over work, and I pray, Lord, please help me have peace. Help me get rid of the bitterness or whatever it is that, that, that I'm making. It's making me toss and turn at night. His answer? Cast out what? What are you talking? You have this. You have me. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in what you are. Rejoice in who you are. Let me come in and change your, the way your mind is governed. And by my Holy Spirit, I'll be with you and my word will dwell with you forever. And that takes us to 10 minutes till I probably have more to say about that, but I want to leave you with that. Remember who you are and not remembering who you are tends to lead to all kinds of other things that, that you let creep into your mind and you start believing those things. But if you remember who you are, you can cast out those other things when they try and, and enter your mind. Thoughts, last comments, questions, anything else before we leave? Yes. I do record this. Yeah. For better or worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I meant to send that in the, my class notes that I send out. I usually put a link at the bottom, but uh, if you just search, wherever you get your podcasts, if you search CPC Common Ground, should come up, or even my last name, Fesco, F-E-S-K-O, it should come up. Uh, and I, I can send those links out. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Olivia. I'm going to give you the mic, Olivia. Profane fire, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They forgot who they were. Why'd you do that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, when you come right down to it, every sin, every sin you could trace back to the idea that you forget that God is holy. You forget God's holiness. And when you forget that, and and then you forget that you've been made holy, all right, think of how many other paths that can lead you down. How many paths of falsehood. That was the first sin of of Adam and Eve. They, they, They stopped, they forgot that God was holy. They thought, well, you know what? The thought was, I could be like God. Okay, when you start thinking that, you forget how holy God is. Every single time, every single time. Great, great uh, observation. Any other thoughts? All right, let me close this in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for your word, uh, how miraculous it is. And thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we can open it up and just read it. What a miracle that is. Uh, Help us to not just be people that, that take it in, but help us to take it in and apply it, to live it out, uh, to be changed from the inside out, not because we believe it's a set of rules that we have to follow or a moral code, uh, but because Christ is holy and, uh, and you are making us like Christ. And that changes the way we are. That changes who we are from the inside out. Help us to always remember that. Never forget it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.